Hello, blokes. This is the Pendulum Land Podcast. Oh, no. Welcome, infa- <coughs> Welcome, infrastructure junkies, to our show. This is a podcast created by right-of-way professionals for right-of-way professionals. I'm Dave Arnold. With me is Kristen Bennett and Carrie Lynn Hirsch from Pendulum Land Services. The Pendulum Land Podcast is the voice of the right-of-way industry. We are your primary source of news, trends, and developments in eminent domain, right-of-way acquisition, and the Uniform Relocation Act. And now for something completely different. Today. There's been a British invasion of the Pendulum Land podcast. Are we having Ed Sheeran on? No, even better. The Beatles? No. Our good friend from across the pond, Myrick Lewis, is with us today. We are going to learn about compulsory acquisition in the UK and how climate change litigation over there almost put a halt to several major infrastructure projects. We're joined by Myrick, who's a barrister in the UK and who focuses his career on compulsory acquisition. And we have a dynamite episode for you today. That is better than Ed Sheeran. It sure is. But first, today's episode of the Pendulum Land Podcast is brought to you in part by Pendulum Land Services. You know how right-of-way projects seem to always get delayed or go over budget due to condemnation and relocation issues? Well, Pendulum Land Services has the unique ability to identify and solve potential challenges before they arise. In fact, their projects are managed by experienced attorneys and relocation experts who are also the principals of Pendulum Land Services. Check them out at PendulumLand.com. PendulumLand.com. Hey, Pendulum Land podcast listeners. If you want a little more information about our podcast, you can check us out at PendulumLandPodcast.com. It's a great place to catch up on old episodes, and you can sign up to be an official infrastructure junkie and join our mailing list. Also, Dave and I tease that we have a big, big drawing coming up mid-year for some awesome Pendulum Land podcast prizes. If you want to be entered to win those prizes, you can follow us with our handle at Pendulum Land Pod. We're on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. With us today is our good friend, Myrick Lewis, who's a lawyer in Great Britain, but over there they call them barristers. Fancy. Yes, he has widespread expertise in compulsory purchase and compensation law acting for and advising clients on major infrastructure proposals, and as well as compensation issues arising from those proposals. He's frequently reported in the specialist law reports in notable cases. His court practice ranges from judicial and statutory review in the higher courts to prosecutions and other regulatory proceedings in the Crown Court and Magistrate Court. He has particular expertise in proceedings related to the planning, enforcement, statutory nuisance, and land contamination. Okay, Myrick, welcome to the Pendulum Land Podcast from all the way across the pond. Well, hi, Dave. Very glad to be here. Thank you for the welcome. No, thank you. What time is it over there? It's like 4 p.m. in the afternoon, 4 o'clock. Okay. All right. Well, it's still the morning here, so... um, Time travel appears to be a real thing. We want to talk to you a little bit today about what you call compulsory acquisition. We call it eminent domain, and I think our good friend Andrea down in Australia also calls it compulsory acquisition. Yeah, yeah. 
And you are a barrister in the United That's Kingdom? That's correct. And we call those lawyers, or yeah. as Kristen says, lawyer. Liar. <laughs> <laughs> lawyer. <laughs> lawyer. <laughs> that, frequently liars. And for starters, <laughs> is there really a difference between what we know as a lawyer and what you all know as a barrister? Other than you guys sound a lot fancier. <laughs> no, not at all. It, it's just a historic thing where the barrister is like the trial lawyer. So we have a split profession where you've got what's called solicitors who historically solicited the services of a barrister. And so the barrister would do the trial work. So your family solicitor would deal with, you know, like buying your house, would deal with wills, would deal with heaven help us divorces if it came to it, that sort of thing. Uh, I, the analogy which is sometimes made is, is like, having a, um, a general practitioner, your doctor, who's a general practitioner. And then if you need a trial lawyer, the specialist, you go to the trial lawyer. So that's how the split system works. Yeah. Oh, okay. But do, do you actually wear a powdered wig to court? Not, not a powdered one, but I, I would do wear a horsehair wig uh, and I have a, a, a gown, a, a bang up to the minute gown, I think styled on sort of design first uh, catwalked in the 17th century kind of thing. So. <laughs> I, I wish we had a visual. Yeah, so so do I, actually. When I've come and visited the IRWA, your side of the pond, I always bring my robes with me. So, so next time I see you there, Dave, I'll be sure and give you a, a fashion show. Yes, and, and definitely like wear it to the Canadian night party. A Canadian party night or something like that. Oh, that would go over very well at the Canadian party, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, well, except, sorry to be a stick in the mud, but as a barrister, I you know, can't go, you know, sort of, uh, yeah, going to party. Yeah, I, I'm only really supposed to wear it in court kind of thing. I'm not even supposed to wear it on my way to court. Oh. So that sounds terribly stuffy and awful. I'm allowed to show people what it's like, but I can't just come to a party and then hit the dance floor. <laughs> what, a, what, a shame. what a shame. How, what, what if it's Halloween? <laughs> yeah, but, no, there are no special exemptions for Halloween, sadly. Otherwise, yeah, no, that's a good, good idea. Good idea. Got it. Got it. So you, you don't have the concept of eminent domain, right? Do you even use those words over there? Um, no, not so much. And you guys say condemnation as well, don't you? Yes. But, but I mean, you know, what we have is just the concept of compulsory acquisition or compulsory purchase, we call right. it most commonly, you know, which is just the taking of, of somebody's land by force, but by force. subject to just compensation. So, so you guys still do it the way the king used to do it. You go and cut a poor peasant's head off and just take his goats. Yeah. No, no not really. But, but it is. It, it is enforceable uh, as, as a right of entry. Yeah, it, it is a kind of, yeah, it, it, it's a compulsory author, author, authorization to take somebody's land away. So so let's, getting down just a little bit into the weeds, it's eminent domain in the United States is frequently misunderstood and that they think that people tend to think they have constitutional rights when in fact the Fifth Amendment is really a limitation on the power of the sovereign. Yeah, yeah. In other words, you can't take the property unless you pay just compensation. How Absolutely. does the law handle it over there? Quite frankly, at root, it is exactly the same thing. Because talking with the IRWA, one of the first times I ever came to see you guys, um, it was in the anniversary of Magna Carta. So it was 2015. It was the 800th anniversary of Magna Carta. 
and you, you can actually trace practically the same words in the Fifth Amendment back to Magna Carta. It's the oh, self- oh, okay. same thing. Okay, yeah. well, you, I mean, Myrick, you do understand that, that you guys inspired the Bill of Rights, with the, which the Fifth Amendment is part of, because yeah. back in the day, you know, in the olden, olden times when we were still uh, a little baby nation, uh, we'd had such a bad experience with, with um, the government across the pond that in order yeah, to get absolutely. things right, we needed yeah. a Bill of Rights, which this, this was yeah. part of it. Absolutely. My golly, well, I wish I'd brought my slides along uh, for for this same talk, which I did, because talking about the Bill of Rights, so many of the phrases like no taxation without representation, again, basically, they all come from Magna Carta. All of these ones, these fundamental uh, concepts, which, yeah, both you guys and the Brits have at the root of their democracy. Really, they go back to like 1215, Magna Carta. So it's kind of like in uh, hip hop terms, we sampled you guys and, and we didn't, yeah. didn't pay you for it. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, that's right. Do we owe, do we owe you an apology for that? No, we're going to get to some apologies here, yeah. but uh, you know, uh, we hey, do no, no. I, I think we should thank you. We should yeah. thank you for the Magna Carta. Thank you for the Magna Carta. And by the way, we're still a baby nation. We don't have anything 800 years old. No. <laughs> hey, Myrick, so mm. I specialize in relocation assistance, uh, sure which is, thing. from what I understand, pretty specific to the United States. Um, how do you handle it if somebody's um, being acquired that, that lives there or that runs a business there or has stuff there that has to move? Relocation is something which my colleagues and I, whenever we come to the U.S., we're absolutely stunned by the way you, you guys do it the way you have the appraisal system, the way somebody will approach somebody, explain to them what's going to happen, and then um, uh, kind of help them through the process. In Britain, it's kind of a bit more formal. The first thing they'll ever receive will be a notification that a compulsory purchase order has been made, and it will advise them what to do. There might be a bit of a lead-in with some consultation about it in advance, But other than that, the person who responds to the taking has to take the initiative themselves in terms of formulating their objection to it and following the process through right down to if the order is confirmed to making their claim for compensation. They have to make the running with all of that. They don't get anyone coming to them and appraising their property for them and saying this is what we think it is is worth unless they're made an offer simply by the same authority who's going to take it from them. them. So so there's an imbalance there. So that that whole process starts with the the landowner telling you what they want to be paid for this? Pretty much. Or or they can ask you, if you're the the taking authority, what you think it is worth, and you will tell them. But but more often than not, because it comes from somebody who they don't trust, because these are the people taking their property away, they think it's too, they think that price is too low. So, so th- th- there's not the same independence. There's not the same uh, sort of safeguard there as you guys have with the appraisal system. Wow, wow, that is that's fascinating. I didn't know that. And yeah. then if if yeah. somebody has to move, is that any any kind of cost to them for having to relocate? Would that be included in that price that they're giving you? Yeah, they they, they, they get consequential losses like you know their basic removals costs and things like that, and loss of trade in the interim. And oh. there's something I'll come back to in a second or two where, where businesses are concerned. Because if, 
if there's, or, or I'll cut to it now, if a business can't relocate because Britain is a smaller country, they can't just sort of go to another industrial estate or something like that, just sure. like that. Very often, um, if a business can't relocate, they'll be put out, out of business altogether. So the compensation has to take account of, of what we call the extinguishment of the business. The extinguishment. And how yeah, is yeah. that how is that price computed? Who it's, comes up with that number? Yeah, that that is very complicated and normally involves forensic accountants. Oh, uh, and, and I would say it, it, it's probably the biggest area for dispute and litigation. So, so is it a essentially is it a business valuation proposition when yeah. there is extinguishment? See, yeah, that, yeah, that, that, that's, that's right. You, an extinguishment. See, what we do here um, is, it, unfortunately, it doesn't, if someone's going out of business because they can't relocate, we have something that we can pay called a fixed or in lieu of payment. And it is an average of the previous two years of net income for the business, a one-time payment with a minimum of $1,000. Here's the bad deal. The maximum is 40000 so you go out of business and the most money we can give you if you go out of business is $40,000, which I don't know what how that translate into, uh, it translates into pounds these days, like but it's not pounds. a lot of money. It's like two pounds yeah. in the right. UK right now. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, I, I think it would be two thirds in, in, in pounds in the UK. But no, no, I know what you're saying. That to me, that is very interesting because I always had the impression that uh, the, the relocation regime under the Uniform Relocation under the Uniform Relocation Act is kind of more beneficial in the sense that you can even pay people a, a bit more than they're uh, uh, you know, if, if they're going to better premises. You can pay them a bit more to take account of that. Am I am I right in remembering? In a, that? Yes, if it's a residential, if it's a residential um, occupant, okay, um, we have a, a supplement available to them. Uh, if they're going to purchase a replacement property, we can pay them the difference between what they got for their uh, su- for the subject property versus what it would cost them to replace that on the market. We don't really have that with business, but under uh, reestablishment expenses, we can we can compensate for two years of increased operating costs. So let me let me just be clear: the Uniform Act and what we do over here, there's there's a little bit of flexibility with it, but it, there are some things that are really black and white. So I think one of the advantages over here with relocation benefits is that we provide advisory services. So that's a lot of handholding, explaining, providing written notices, transportation, helping with all that. But the financial stuff is limited. A lot of things have a statutory cap. Okay. Going back to, you indicated that you send the compulsory purchase order and you advise the property owners of what to do. What do you tell them to do? You advise them on the procedures. Because like Kristen was saying, it's not so much handholding, but it's engagement. I mean, uh, uh, there is, it, it's, not a, it's not a duty written into law, but it's part of policy and procedure that you have to advise the citizen as to their rights. And, and it, there has to be somebody who they can come to and speak to about what, what the avenues are for pursuing either their objection or their compensation. But it's very much, yes, you need to instruct a professional to advise you on that. So immediately it's kind of adversarial. It's the individual against the authority. So, and Myrick, to be clear, do you generally represent the authority? I do either. And I'm going to come back to business losses in a minute because uh, what Kristen said about you know the limit of the $40,000, that's fascinating to me because we have millions of pounds worth claims for businesses. 
it's interesting to me because over here, generally people pick one side or the other. Lawyers pick one side or the other to really specialize in, but you just, it's like you're for sale, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And in my chambers, I can be acting against a colleague on a case. So he or she might be for the authority and I'm for the landowner or or, or compensation claim. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. Now, d- describe what you mean by in your chambers. Is that the equivalent of kind of the same law firm? Um, n- no, it's not, because as a barrister, I am a self-employed person who, again, historically will be under the same roof as fellow barristers, all of whom are freelancers, self-employed practitioners, and all of us have our own duties and obligations in relation to confidentiality, conflict of interest. So even though we're on opposite sides, yeah, it, it, it's not a conflict to be in the same chambers. Okay, hmm. so, so if I'm, if I've, let's say I've got a McDonald's franchise over in London. Yeah. You have McDonald's over there, don't you? Yeah, that's one of the things. Yeah. We need to apologize to you for that as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> let's say I've got a McDonald's franchise and they're going to widen the road and take it. And I go through the Googles and I look for a good barrister and I come to yeah. Myrick Lewis. And yeah. what would you, as my barrister, advise me on what you thought the acquisition was worth? Yeah. And would you get your own appraisal of value, your own well, opinion? Yeah, of yeah. Value? I, I, I'd, need, I'd need a valuer to tell me that. But yes, I, 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 I could do all of that for you. What I thought you were going to ask me is if you Googled me and you found out that I'd acted either for or against McDonald's before, that might be a more tricky thing because if I'd acted on one side or the other and had some insider knowledge about how either the organization worked or how McDonald's operated in cases like that, yeah, that might be a conflict situation. But other than that, I can advise, I can say, oh, yes, I did a case like this last year with so-and-so valuer. You should speak to them about what your business is worth, that kind of thing. And when you say valuer, you mean an appraiser in appraiser, American terminology? So, yeah. Okay, so I sign you up as my barrister. What's the mechanism for me to get what I think is fair payment for the acquisition? Is it a courtroom proceeding? Do you have a jury? Uh, do you uh, pull it out of a hat? How do you handle that? You don't have a jury anymore. In the 19th century, it used to be a jury. And so it was a bit, um, uh, could be a bit more more random. But it went quite quickly to arbitration with specialist arbitrators, valuer stroke appraisers, who um, w- would determine what the final value was. And then nowadays, we've got a specialist tribunal for that kind of thing. So you can either get a lawyer member sitting as a judge, or a valuer stroke appraiser member sitting as a judge who, who will decide your case for you. Well, when do you have just a judge sitting as a judge? It's almost, in this tribunal, it's almost interchangeable because it'd be the kind of thing which if the mood took me, I could apply to be a judge in that tribunal. Or when I retired as a barrister, I could apply to be a judge in that tribunal because I know the field I know what the arguments are. So that, that's like I say, it, it's a specialist tribunal. It's people who are who, who, who've practiced in that field before. So whether they come from the valuation side, the money side, or whether they come from the legal side, they can be a judge in that tribunal. So when you make an offer, what are you paying for? Is it fair market value of just the property? Is there anything else included in that? What do you 
what do you include in that offer? It, it, it's it's market value, but including all of the pro- the potential in the property. I think what you guys call best and highest value. Am I right? Yes, highest and best use. Highest and best use. Sorry, I, I knew I'd get that wrong by trying <laughs> it. But you can also get what we call disturbance, which is, like I say, removals expenses. But that can include any other matter, and I think I'm quoting, not based on the value of the land. So that's like consequential losses. Uh, and, and that can be, okay, arguably, you might say business profits was based on the value of the land. But no, no, it isn't if you're valuing the business. And like Kristen was saying, it's sometimes done by a number of years purchase on the profits, on the historic profits of the business. But n- nowadays, it, 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 it's much more fiendishly complicated than that because claims can run into millions and millions of pounds. And again, th- th- there's no cap or limit which, which is paid oh, for that for a business see, which you put out of business. That's a much better deal over there if you're, if, uh, if you're putting yeah, yeah, someone yeah, out yeah, of business. That, 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 that's why you surprised me by saying that. But I think it really is because it's a more common phenomenon, you know, especially if you've got a, a specialist business or which relies on its location or locality. There's far more of a risk that it's not going to find anywhere where it can carry on as before because Britain is so much more constrained you know, for, for, for land area. Well, you know, we have tons of land over here, but we ha- we run into the same problem all the time, especially with businesses like mobile home parks or anything automotive. Um, a lot of time they're, they're grandfathered into their current location and, and cities don't mm-hmm. want to grant them uh, permission yeah. to operate those types of businesses. So we have plenty of land, but it's not always easy to... Well, the, 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 then that's extraordinary to me because yeah, I, I do think of the British system as being the one which has you know these kind of sticking points which are unfair. Mm-hmm. But actually, the compensation system does seem there. Yeah, we, we have the same concept of I think you guys call it making it people whole. You know, we have restitution in in Latin restitutio ad integrum. You know, but that just means put with. with putting you back in the position as if you were whole kind of thing. Wow. Hey, guys, it's time for cross-examination with Dave. Okay, listeners, this is a brand new game here on the Pendulum Land podcast, and here is how it works. Dave is going to ask our guest five rapid-fire questions that must be answered in one sentence or less. Myrick, are you in? I am ready says he in one sentence. (laughs) Go. Okay, Myrick. First question. British accents make literally anyone sound smart and sexy. Do American accents make literally anyone sound ugly and dumb? That's so not true. (laughs) Okay. Question two. Virginia, which is my home state, where I'm sitting right now, was once your colony. Does that mean you think you're the boss of me? (laughs) No, it does not. Okay, third question. How come John Cleese is not on any British currency? John Cleese would probably say he didn't want to do that because he's quite well known for being a bit spiky. 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 What does that mean? I don't know, but I'm going to steal maybe? that and use it. Spiky. Yes. He's okay. a bit spiky. Bonus question. What does spiky mean? I, I think he's a bit bad-tempered and 
has certainly struggled with um, a sense of frustration in life, which may be my, why he's such a funny guy, by reacting against it. But, you know. So spiky like a porcupine. Yeah, spike. Yeah, you you might you say prickly, prickly. You know, prickly. You know. Yeah. All right, ladies, don't hijack my show. Okay. I'm the game show host here. Carry on. Question number four: American isolationist foreign policy in 1939 and 1940. You still mad, bro? <laughs> 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 I'm not sure how much value you're expecting from these one sentence answers on sort of wide topics like that, and I haven't put a full stop in yet. But no, mate, um, no, I'm not still um, whatever the expression was you used about that. <laughs> okay, and the final question of this round is, is actually a compound question. Myrick, what does the queen actually do, and do you find her attractive? <laughs> I'll have to make sure I use a link so as not to put a full stop in between the two halves of the question. But the Queen does work terribly, terribly hard. She works a full-time schedule all year long, except, uh, you know, except when she's on holiday. Is she attractive? I expect you guys have seen The Crown, where Claire Foy plays the young Queen. And it's said that, my golly, she does that very well and her voice is great. But actually, if you look back at some of the photographs of the Queen when she was that sort of age, she was a very beautiful young woman. You know, so that's, that, that's certainly how far I would go with how attractive the Queen is. You know? She is quite attractive. And we want to know what's in her purse. She always has a purse. What is yeah. in the purse? Okay, this has been Cross-Examination with Dave. And now back to our regularly scheduled programming. Did you know that Pendulum Land Services is a small, women-owned business? And did you also know that PLS has licensed attorneys on staff? Now, they get asked the same question all the time. Why would I pay expensive attorney rates for right-of-way work? And the answer is, at Pendulum, you don't. That's the beauty of PLS. Their clients pay right-of-way agents to manage their projects who just happen to have also litigated hundreds and hundreds of eminent domain cases. Pendulum is also happy to serve as a single-tier subcontractor on a project, for example, to simply handle relocations or just the complex relocations. So if you have a project that requires a skilled approach on complex relocations or any relocations and you need to have the confidence that it will be handled correctly, then check them out at PendulumLand.com. That's PendulumLand.com. Okay, Myrick, I've got to ask you something because I always like to ask this question of people from other lands. And recently, my partner Ross Green and I have had a, quite a bit of experience with this concept of inverse condemnation, yeah. which is essentially taking of property by a governmental agency without paying just compensation, whether it's intentional or not. Do yeah. you all have the same concept over there, or do you have a remedy for something like that? I heard you guys talking about this, and shout out to Ross, uh, by the way, hoping he's doing well. Um, but, yeah, because you were talking about your great case where there'd been pollution which um, killed off the oyster fields. Is that right? That, that was basically what that case was. Well, uh, interestingly, you know, oysters, the type of pollution that was at issue was stormwater runoff. 
which, you know, you have a heavy rain. It drains through everyone's backyard, through all piles of dog droppings, yeah. goes and into the river. And fertilizer and stuff on the fields and, and whatever, yeah. And fertilizer. And sometimes it doesn't actually kill the oysters. They like to eat that stuff, yeah. but you can't eat the oyster after they've yeah, eaten that yeah, yeah. stuff. So, but, but yes, same uh, okay, idea. But, but they yes, can't... So, 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 so it's not killing the oysters, but it's red, rendering them unfit for, uh, for consumption. Exactly. Or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Now, in, in Britain, that would be governed by the law of nuisance. You know, so, so it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be considered a taking. It would be damages for destruction of somebody's property. That would be one way uh, it would work. Uh, but in Britain, what we do have is you know, we, we have a sort of concept of inverse condemnation, but, but it, it's, it's more where you, you've heard that there's going to be a new railway line going through your property or something like that. And even if that's five years um, before the, pro- the project is put in place, then there are procedures where you can go to your, whether it's the local authority or to the government, and say, no, I want you to, you know, it, it, it's advance purchase or it's advance acquisition. You can say, I want, to take, uh, I want you to take this off my, ha- uh, off my hands, but you don't have the same thing that, that, that yeah, you know, if, if there's runoff from a farmer or something, yeah, there's all kinds of case law about nuisance, which deals with that kind of thing. Myra, who has the uh, authority to take property? Is it just the government? Um, Can the government grant that authority it, to other entities? Central or local government. So like with, sorry, there's a great knock at the door there. Somebody's going to get it. Um, central or local government so like with a project like Heathrow airport there's a company which is promoting it but if, if essentially it's an arm of government uh, with big rail proposals through the country again that would be central government but again by the time you get down to regional or local level yeah you get local government authorities, which do have powers of compulsory purchase. So your town council say, uh, yeah, you, you, in Britain, you don't call it a town, a town council, but because that, that's an even smaller level than that. But, but if you, yeah, your city council would have a, 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 a power of acquisition. Can they grant that power to private developers? Yep, you can do that too. Um, and uh, you know, I've mentioned the example of Heathrow Airport actually mm-hmm. being uh, a company, water utility companies, gas companies, energy companies, they have powers of compulsory acquisition. But you, you even get uh, crazy stuff where we've got a new kind of compulsory purchase um, mechanism, which is called a development consent order. And so you can have uh, an airfield owner that wants to expand, and they can actually take land off another individual. That's something which is contemplated. So, so actually, you can have bodies who aren't government bodies at all, where so long as they can justify the compulsory purchase, they can actually take somebody else's land away. So does the project have to be for the benefit of the public as a whole? Yeah, yes, but that's kind of more, the, the concept is a bit looser in the US, because you guys have the Kelo case, which yeah, I know a lot of people think is constitutionally wrong, but you, you, you can get commercial bodies who, will, um, who, who could take powers of compulsory purchase. And the most extreme example I can think of is that there's a proposal 
for like a theme park at the moment. I don't think actually that, I, don't, I, I think they might have bought all the land in advance. They might not have wanted to trip themselves up like that. But, but conceivably, under this process, this development consent order process, they could actually take compulsory purchase power. Myrick, um, I want to. Uh, th- that's a great explanation. But we 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 want to let you know that we at the Pendulum Land Podcast, during the course of this show, we have some things we want to thank you and your brethren in the UK for, and we have a few things that we want to apologize for. So right now, we're just going to take a minute. We've conferred. Me, my co-hosts and I have conferred, and we would like you to take this message back to our brothers and sisters across the pond. We want to thank you for the, five, the next five things. Yes. Number one, Myrick, Great Britain. Thank you for the movie Love Actually. It's a masterpiece, a classic, never gets old. Thank you for Love Actually. Number two, Myrick, thank you for Ed Sheeran. <laughs> are you an Ed Sheeran fan? Yeah, yeah, no, he's a great guy. He's a great guy. Who doesn't love Ed Sheeran? Nobody doesn't love Ed Sheeran. Exactly. Thank you for parliamentary procedure. And I'm going to add to that. Thank you for the Magna Carta as well. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, thank you for the English Springer Spaniel. Thank you. Yeah. And finally, thank you for Monty Python. Yeah. Never gets Good old. One. The younger generation doesn't understand Monty Python so much, but literally never, ever gets old. So what we want to do is we would like to turn our discussion, and this is something I was unaware of until I recently communicated to you via email, but apparently you have something going on over there called like climate change litigation, and somehow <laughs> that has threatened infrastructure projects. Do tell. Hey. Do tell. Yeah, no, big, big time. And the biggest example of this is the enormous expansion of Heathrow Airport, which has been proposed for, for years now. They, they need a third runway. And there are all kinds of arguments there. It's because otherwise Heathrow's status as the biggest and busiest um, airport in Europe will all the business will go to like Amsterdam or somewhere like that. So they say, we've really got to have a third runway here. And that's despite having now a fourth terminal and then recently a fifth terminal. And now they need an air, a, a, another, another runway as well. So people are objecting to that. And the big ground of objection was that it was said that when the third runway was announced and consulted on, it didn't take account of the Paris Agreement. Because the Paris Agreement, everyone has signed up to to put limits on um, emissions which contribute to global warming and climate change. And it was a big thing which your previous president didn't like. And he actually took the US out of it because he didn't want the limits imposed. It was one of the first acts Joe Biden did when he came in. Right. to sign back up to the Paris Agreement. But it was said in Britain that the Paris Agreement, which was ratified and signed up to in about 2016, it went in parallel with consultation for Heathrow. And it was said that you couldn't possibly promote Heathrow with increase in flights, increase in, glo- uh, in fuel emissions, and an increase in global warming. You couldn't possibly do that consistently with signing up to the Climate Change Paris Agreement. Um, And the Court of Appeal agreed with protesters about that. But 
in the last couple of months or just before Christmas, it went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court had decided, no, no, there's no inconsistency between the two objectives of seeking to try to achieve net zero or whatever it is under the Paris Agreement and actually expanding Heathrow so long as you have regard to the the sort of checks and balances with the two, and you have an overall strategic objective of trying to uh, to, to limit uh, fuel emissions and global warming generally. But it, it was something where, where, yeah, environmental protest really did nearly put an end to the Heathrow expansion plans. I get it. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. I get both arguments. But what are you going to do? Are we as a, as a human race going to decide that all expansion is bad from here on out for various reasons? And they could be environmental, they could be social, they could be socioeconomic. Or do we adopt the philosophy that we as a species are going to continue to expand everything until we become extinct? Yeah. Or is there a middle yeah. ground? We're, it we're, sounds like maybe our friends across I, the pond found the middle ground. I think they what, did. What yeah, do you think, Marek? Yeah, I, I think what they say is that you can allow certain forms of expansion just so long as you compensate it by, by other kinds. Do you guys have loads of electric cars? Because in Britain, it's a really big thing now. You can walk down the street and you, and you can see a car plugged into like a socket charging well, up. There's a gentleman over here. He's not a, well, he's an American citizen now, but he's from South Africa by the name of, have you heard of him before? Elon, Elon Musk, Musk. who yeah. decided that he didn't have any background in, in um, electric vehicles. He decided he was going to invent the Tesla, which has done magnificently well. But it's just, you know, we're so reliant on fossil fuels over here. We just have to change our mindset. So you do see more Teslas, and occasionally you see car charging stations but we're still so spread out. And it takes, yeah. like Kristen, who lives in Texas, she can drive four or five hours to get from one project to the next. You know, you can probably, yeah. that amount of time, drive across England, right? So yeah. we're so spread out that we're. It, it takes, I think, quite a bit more adjustment over here. Yeah, yeah. But, but there, yeah. You, do see, you do see the stations for them to be plugged in more often than we used to, but it's a slow change. I've also yeah. seen some natural gas vehicles but no, it's not. It's not prevalent, probably like it is yeah. over there yet. Yeah. So on the Heathrow Airport, they tried to put a stop to the expansion. Was the at that point, Myrick was was the expansion still in planning stages, or had construction begun? Had funds been spend, spent on the project? It's a difference between the compulsory purchase order pro, uh, procedure and the de the development consent order procedure. Development consent order, you do have to have a lot more consultation in advance. And so what there was, was there was a policy statement that it was government policy that they would expand Heathrow. And so then on the back of the policy statement, um, they were then going to promote the orders for the expansion of Heathrow through that. It was a sort of longer lead in time. They do it with power stations as well. They say, right hey, we need like three extra power stations. Where are they going to go? North, south, east, or west? And you have a consultation about, uh, you have a consultation and you, they, you then get a policy statement about where it was going to go. So it was at that kind of stage. Because they were saying, well, should this one way be, say, at Gatwick Airport, which is south of London? Should it be at Stansted Airport, which is to the east of London? No, no, no. They said it should be Heathrow Airport. But then they said, no, hang on a sec. 
you've forgotten about the Paris Agreement. That was what the argument was all about. Okay, and if they had been successful, what would have been the practical effect of that? It would have been, uh, yeah, uh, unless they could have gone back and they said, well, Stansted or Gatwick actually wouldn't have the same problems, it would have been, that's it for Heathrow. And so Heathrow Airport Company Limited would say, oh, my golly, there goes all our business to Schiphol in Amsterdam, you know. Um, it, it would have been it would have been curtains. It would have been echoing footsteps down the corridors uh, 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 of Heathrow Company Limited, kind of thing. You know, it would have been just, just for failure to be able to construct the third runway. I'm exaggerating slightly. <laughs> really. No, it was very descriptive. <laughs> was, I loved it. it. Very Monty Pythonish yeah. of you. Yeah, just a yeah. flesh wound. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, it, it, it would just have meant that 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 was that. You know, that it's it's the wheels coming off the wagon. Yeah. Wow. So, um, Myrick, just a quick little thing. We we've we've done this. We did this with Andrea Carolyn from Australia, and Dave thinks he can do a British accent. It's actually rather pathetic. <laughs> can you do an American accent? Ooh, that's ooh. I I feel like if I were British and I were going to do an American accent, I'd just be like, wah, 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 wah. I, I, I'm a country, yeah. I'm a country and Western singer, partner. Right. But do you like yeah. if you're over there? Because we we as Americans love to pretend like we're fancy uh, British people and 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 steal some of your words or to pretend to have an accent. Do, do people do that? Do you guys make fun of Americans? It's okay Sorry, to do, say do yes. What with Americans? Do you make fun, poke fun at us in the way that we speak? And it's okay to say yes. I would. If no, I were you. No, no, not at all. But I think more with the American accent. It's it's seeing like movies like Silkwood. Do you remember with Meryl Streep, where that. she's doing like a, a kind of southern accent? which Brits had certainly never heard before. I, I, I can't remember which state she was from, but she was down in the South, and, and it wasn't, you know, like the slack-jawed yokel on The Simpsons or something <laughs> like that. Uh, you know, it, 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 it was something completely different here. Or the guy who played, like, the original, original Incredible Hulk. And he Lou was Ferrigno? From, yeah, yeah Lou Ferrigno, right? I, I can't remember what what the name was, but but he he, he apparently wanted to do his own um, his his own dialogue, and they just wouldn't let him do it because apparently he had like a real Brooklyn accent, and again that's something <laughs> you know I don't which remember. I can remember from from the movies producers when they go on about this guy who lives up on the roof and is landed going he's talking. He, the the guy who wrote the springtime for Hitler sure. script right. is that Nazi guy, and she's complaining about how he's only interested in his birds. But being from Brooklyn, as I understand it, she doesn't say birds; she says boids. Okay. <laughs> boids. And so, and so the thing about the the um, Incredible Hulk guy. Long story short, was he had a Brooklyn accent, and they didn't think it would play that well if they let him do his own dialogue. No, there's there's. Literally not much sexy about it. Okay, so so are you going to give us your best shot at an American accent? What would I do? Um, or like Tony Curtis okay. in um, 
sweet smell of success yes. where he's trying to get a newspaper and he's in a hurry and he's going come on or something like that that was good I think that's the best I can do well I think you should stick with your accent because it's charming okay I agree and we mentioned earlier that we had several things to thank you for now we have some apologies yeah we're sorry Myrick and England we're sorry what are we sorry for well number one we're sorry for Gwyneth Paltrow and Renee Zellweger and their attempts at a British accent, which I can pretty much do better than them. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, I'm not going to disagree. We're also sorry for dragging you into the war against Iraq. Boy, sometimes you shouldn't listen to us. Sorry. Ooh, yeah, no, that, yeah, that touches a raw nerve. They, yeah, that, that, that still goes on. And, it's, and I'm sorry, I, I mean, and I'm not talking about you guys at all. No, that, that was something about, yeah, Tony yeah. Blair... Just got 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 it wrong there. I think. Well, so, but there we go. So did George Bush. He didn't. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, we, we could do an entire episode on that. It's a yeah. hot, uh, sensitive uh, topic yeah. for me for us getting involved in that. I'm Way sorry. to take it to the dark side. Sorry that we dragged you into it. Uh, we're also. No, 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 but, but yeah, it, it was it was just such. A, a, you could see. Well, a, one would have thought you could see a mile off, and so why? Um, right. Yeah. Right. We Brit thought it was a, a good idea, you know, to cozy up, to big up, to, you know, that kind of thing, which, yeah, hey. <laughs> well, okay, we're, let's we're not sorry. Side, like <laughs> so uh, next one is sorry, not sorry. Sorry for stealing David Beckham. Our bad. But yeah. thank you. <laughs> well, I, I think, like, yeah, your third, this third one of yours, rather like Gwyneth Paltrow and um, Renee Zellweger. Renee Zellweger. We, yeah, we, 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 yeah. You don't have to apologize that much for those two. Okay. Yeah, keep, keep going. We've only done three. We, yeah, sorry. I, I keep well, interrupting. And, with David Beckham, we also stole one fifth of the Spice Girls. Yeah, we yeah. got posh. Sure. Sorry about that. But, but <laughs> what's number four? Ne, ne, uh, quick, very quickly, next time you review um, Spice Girls, you actually have a look at what Victoria Beckham does, and, and it's not a whole lot. So there, there's a, a scope for debate there about you know how much of a loss it is, how much you've made. <laughs> oh, so that was a Spice Girl. You know what? We didn't take Sporty or Baby. You know. Okay. Finally, this this is a big one. We're sorry for stealing "God Save the Queen" and turning it into "My Country Tis of Thee." We're sorry. Yeah, and then being forced to sing it every day at the beginning of our school day right. for like seven oh, years. Oh, hey. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, yeah, well, yeah, well then no apology necessary. For oh, oh, we're off the hook for that right. one. Okay. Well, and then the last one. The last one, we're not off the hook for this, but everything seemed to turn out okay in the long run. But um, we Americans made a really bad decision in the late 1930s, and you guys were left to your own devices to fight a war, and Britain was it. And thank God for the English Channel. But we left you to your own devices for a couple of years before we got into the yep. Second Great War. And, boy, I'm I'm glad we got into it, but I'm really sorry we left you guys. For well, guys, yourself. yeah, no, you, you certainly made up for it when, when you joined in. So, yeah, don't be so hard on yourselves. Okay, so we're off the hook. We're forgiven for all of yeah. those things? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. good. Even, but, even posh. Even okay. Po- okay. <laughs> So I have some words here. I didn't know the definitions of one of them was, can you tell me what ransom value is? Oh yeah. Ransom value. And it happens quite a lot 
It's where you've got a site where somebody owns either the entrance or you've got to cross somebody else's land to get into your field. Yeah, I should have explained that more clearly. Okay, okay. Now, I um, did a little bit of research, and Chambers and Partners is similar to, I guess, our Martindale Hubble here. And they issued a statement about you, and I'm going to paraphrase it, that said, what Myrick Lewis doesn't know isn't worth knowing. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> wow, put that on your resume. That's, that's quite a statement. Yeah. Well, ru- rumor has it that somebody only put that in because they knew that it would then be used against me at any sort of time <laughs> when I came up for something like this and sort of really put on the spot and squirm about it. Well, nobody's ever said that about any of us, so I, yeah. you should own that. That's yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. And then where can I get a copy of the Sweet and Maxwell Compulsory Purchase Encyclopedia? Do you know anything about that? Oh, hey, all, all good bookshops. Yeah, I, I, I gather they've got a very a, a, a top editorial team there. But uh, yeah, more than that, I'm not at liberty to say uh, on grounds <laughs> of conflict of interest. Fair. Uh, hey, wait. Or vested interest, I should say. Wait, do you hear that? What's that sound? It's time for round two of cross-examination with Dave. Uh, great. Are we ready? Yeah. Okay, question number one. Myrick, Elizabeth Hurley, do you happen to have her phone number? And if so, can you hook me up? <laughs> no, Ugh. but get this, get this. I know it's like there's, there used to be a, a, a musical song back in the, the 19th century about Knowing somebody who had, who knew somebody who had danced with, who knew a girl who danced with the Prince of Wales. <laughs> I do know somebody who went to her wedding, which was like the wedding of the 20th century. And it was because this guy had been in, in the British Army, but in the Gurkha Regiment in the British Army with Elizabeth Hurley's um, dad. What? So, so if I'd known about this, Dave, you could have got in touch with me. I could have run somebody up. You could have run somebody else up. You could have run up this guy. Oh, he, he knows guy a guy who knows a guy. Got you in there, and oh. you could have broken it all up. Wait, but Myrick, the wedding of the 20th century. You live in England. Wouldn't that be Princess Diana's wedding? Ooh. Yeah, hey. Now I was out of the country when that happened. I was on summer holiday. You weren't invited night. to that one. <laughs> but I did watch um, Prince William's wedding, which, which actually, almost despite myself, because I'm not a sort of died in the wool, um, you know, monarchist royalist or whatever. But no, sure. no, that, that, that was quite a moving occasion. It was, one, and that was know? this. I believe that was the same day that Osama bin Laden was killed. It was a very big day, or at least really? it was the I, same I, weekend. I, it was the same that, weekend. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, hey, I'm I'm the host of this game show. Okay, <laughs> oh, we're playing a game. Yeah, I forgot. Yeah. yeah. Carry on. Yeah, that was longer, I, sorry, Dave. That was longer I, than one sentence answer as well. I forgot myself. <laughs> okay, you've already lost, Myrick. Question number two. <laughs> Quest, are you ready for question number two? Yeah. Uh, fish and chips. Was England having an off day when that was invented? No, fish and chips is a great staple diet. It's uh-huh. um, nutritious um, and tasty. I agree. Uh-huh. That is the right answer, Dave. Okay, let's get on to question number three. Mark, do you agree with me 
that but for the Rolling Stones, Mick Jagger would probably still be a virgin. <laughs> That's got to be true. And he can't dance either. He can't Thank sing. You. He can't sing either. He, he doesn't have the moves yeah. like Jagger. But oh that said, if you guys ever see uh, Nicholas Rogue, the director of like The Man Who Fell to Earth, the one with David Bowie, and there's an earlier one with Art Garfunkel called Bad Timing with Harvey Keitel in it, Nick Rogue, an ama- oh, and Don't Look Now with Donald Sutherland, um, uh, an amazing director. But if you watch his movie from the 60s called Performance, Mick Jagger is in that and he is amazingly cool he's amazingly good and he's amazingly cool so you do get a bit of an idea about you know what it's all about with, you, with you can't Uncle well you can't deny that he's he, cool he, oh piece of trivia rolling stones were were and still are my favorite band i love pearl jam but but i grew up on the rolling stones okay question number four is a question about a dog myrick the pembroke welsh corgi why you do that Uh, well, yeah, it's a, yeah. It's my, a short dog with uncle. a big butt and ears that stick up. Yeah, yeah. and and they they chop their tails they as well when ta- they're small. Yes, yeah. I, I, I don't get what that's about. And like a lot of small dogs, they're, they're quite aggressive mm-hmm. as well. You know, so yeah, I, I, I don't really know what the thing is. They're, they're quite cute to look at. Queen Elizabeth they're, they're, has they're, those. They're yes? funny to look at. Yes, the okay. queen. The queen yeah. has corgis. Okay, last question in this round. All right, Myrick, this is a big one. Who is your favorite Beatle? And it can't be John, Paul, or George. Oh, damn. Because um, no, I would have said George. I would have said George. Good. By, um, by the way, that's a great answer, George. Oh, George. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. you can't say George. I can't say George. Well, who, who, who's left? Um, what was the fifth Beatle called? <laughs> are, you, are you looking to Pete Best at this point? I, I think he's, yeah. he's doing yeah, Pete everything. Pete Best, good one. Full marks there. We ought to play a good Ooh. trivia. Game. Hey, Dave's um, a, yeah, a rolling... I have to go with Ringo. have to go with Ringo. Oh, Ringo? you like Ringo? The guy Myrick. that wrote the Yellow Submarine? He's <laughs> no, awful. Nobody's favorite Beatle is Ringo. Listen, oh, no, he... Oh, actually, no, it's a, it's a joke. This is a, Paul, a George Harrison story, not a Ringo story, but it's when dear George was dying... On his deathbed, Ringo goes to see him, but his own daughter was suffering from cancer, so he had to go to the States to visit his daughter. And he said to George Harrison, I'm sorry, I've really got to go now. And George said, do you want me to come with you? This is on, you know, pretty much on his deathbed. Wow. Brilliant bits of yeah. bit of Beatles humor, don't you think? You know. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. that's a great story. You know, Dave's a Rolling Stones guy. I'm a Beatles girl. I grew up on the Beatles, and oh. my dad and I were together the day that George passed. It was a sad, oh, sad day. I'll yeah. never forget it. So, well, we are um, about out of time. We're going to wrap up this episode. Myrick, any chance of seeing you at conference this year in San Antonio? Are you guys going to be on lockdown? I would love to come, and I will bring my wig and gown if I can. I've got a top tip for you, Dave. Yeah. You like Monty Python or anyone who likes Monty Python, check out Michael Palin's Ripping Yarns as well. Okay. A dose of python from the late 70s michael palin ripping yarns you can probably find it on youtube or somewhere i've written it down i've written it down so myrick thank you thank you so much for joining us i hope we get to see you in san antonio keep up the good work over there 
Um, and, and thanks again. Well, thank you for having me, you guys. It's great to see you all. And yeah, I would absolutely love to see you again sometimes. Cheers. Bye. We all live in a yellow submarine. Ringo Starr. <laughs>